everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl & Branch. We have Bowl & Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Motion and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They are completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl & Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, off your order. All right, everybody, I hope you had a great weekend. It is Monday, August 15th. I'm Mo Shwinunu, and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. This is the place where we bring you just the facts from verified sources and a breakdown of what matters in the news. We read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. So given all the headlines this weekend after the release of the search warrant of Mar-a-Lago, this happened late Friday afternoon. If you've been following my Instagram feed, I've been trying to keep track of it all for you. I want to devote this Monday edition, this Monday morning edition, to breaking it all down. On Friday, after the Justice Department asked for it to be released and Trump's team approved it, we saw the release of a several-page document that was the search warrant itself, as well as a list of everything they found at Mar-a-Lago in very generalized terms. So we didn't get too many details, but we did find out a couple things. One, that there were top secret and classified documents, including documents at the highest level of security clearance, top secret clearance, uh, found on site at Mar-a-Lago. And we also found out that former President Trump and his team are under investigation for potentially violating three laws. That includes the Espionage Act, a law against the destruction of documents, and a law against obstructing justice uh, when it comes to documents in an investigation. We'll go into depth on those laws today and whether it's possible that former President Trump might not be indicted on any of these. I wanted to bring in someone who brings both legal and political insight and happens to also be a Republican who worked at high levels within the party, including at the Justice Department during the Trump administration. Sarah Isker is an editor at The Dispatch and host of several of their podcasts. She does a great job of breaking it all down, given her inside knowledge, including her time at the Justice Department. I think you'll like how she puts things into perspective here in this podcast, especially vis-a-vis the Hillary Clinton email investigation. Basically, we do compare contrast between the Hillary email investigation and this Trump investigation. Sarah also tells us how a search warrant like this gets approved step by step within the administration and how something like this, the search of a former president's home would get approved, how the White House and the attorney general typically communicate. And also having worked in Republican politics, she will explain why this is currently working in former President Trump's favor right now. 
So be sure to download this podcast, take a listen to it. I know it's longer than my normal daily podcast, but I think you'll get a lot out of it. I think it provides a very important perspective if you're asking any questions right now around the process, around the search warrant, and what might come next. Be ready to have your assumptions questioned, by the way, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. We try to play here point-counterpoint. And before we get started here, please remember to follow this podcast, download this episode, and leave us a review on whatever app you're listening to us on. With that, I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm very pleased to have Sarah Isker on the podcast today. She's an editor over at The Dispatch, a conservative media outlet with a great newsletter. Uh, I suggest that all of you subscribe to it. She's also the co-host of Advisory Opinions, a go-to, my go-to legal podcast out of The Dispatch. She's an analyst over at ABC News. She's a former Republican political advisor, former spokesperson at DOJ. Uh, during the Trump administration, she advised Fiorina. Uh, Ted Cruz, Mitt Romney, and she's a graduate of Harvard Law. Uh, Sarah, I could keep going with your bio here, but there's a lot to get to today. This is what happens when you switch jobs every two years. <laughs> um, so I, I thought that you would bring some incredible perspective here when it comes to the legal ramifications, the political impact, breakdown, how the impact is, um, how everything is breaking down within the Republican Party right now. It's a fast moving story. I should say we are taping this conversation on Sunday evening. Uh, this will go out on Monday morning. Obviously, things could develop and probably will develop overnight with more breaking headlines. But I want to start with sort of where we're at coming off of the revelation of the search warrant on Friday, the list of things the FBI removed from Mar-a-Lago. Sarah, what was your biggest takeaway from the unsealing of the search warrant on Friday? A, I think it's really helpful that they unsealed it. But not surprisingly, we didn't actually learn a whole lot from that. The main thing we learned was the statutory citations of the crimes that they said they were investigating in that search warrant. And we can get into why that is both illuminating, but also not particularly illuminating, because if you find evidence of any other crimes, you get to take that too. Um, the, the crimes, the statutory crimes listed in that search warrant just get you in the front door. The big things, though, the big questions for me aren't going to be answered with something like that. And the big questions for me are, A, what are the documents? What's actually in them? Those are answers we're never going to have. Same thing with you know Hillary Clinton. And I'm going to compare this, I'm sure, a lot to the Hillary Clinton investigation over the course of this conversation. But Hillary Clinton had seven conversations uh, over email that Jim Comey said she absolutely knew, should have known, were uh, top secret classified. This but we're is never going to find out... This is the highest level of clearance of which we also saw that former President Trump had uh, documents of that level. Exactly. And so, uh, you know, would it be helpful for us to get to kind of know that ourselves and determine for ourselves whether we think it's actually a threat to national security? If, for instance, um, that server were hacked or if Donald Trump's documents were accessible to random people? Yeah, but we're not going to find that out. But that's the first question. The mm -hmm. second question is who had access to those rooms in Mar-a-Lago? I get very frustrated when I hear people say, frankly, in both sets of these conversations, Hillary Clinton's server was uh, guarded by the Secret Service. It was attached to the Internet. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Same thing with Donald Trump. I'm hearing Republicans say, well, Mar-a-Lago is guarded by the Secret Service. Yes, their job is to protect Donald Trump, not to protect documents 
that are at Mar-a-Lago that they probably don't even know were there. And so the question is who had access to that space? Interestingly, in uh, the receipts from the search warrant, we did learn that they also took surveillance footage, probably, I would assume, to be able to see who was coming in and out to determine who was getting access to those documents. Uh, And lastly, the thing that I want to know that I think we will know over time, but we didn't learn from the search warrant, of course, is what efforts were made short of executing a search warrant to get those documents back. We know that there was a conversation in June. Uh, We have reporting, at least, that there was a subpoena. But there's a lot of space, actually, legally, between a subpoena and a search warrant. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to assume that DOJ spent the two months between June and now doing something to try to get those documents back I'd like to know what that is, though, because I think for a lot of Republicans, it's not that they're questioning whether the search warrant was legal. They're questioning whether it was necessary, whether it was prudential, whether this is going to lead us down a path where now everyone just raids the home of former presidents if they can get any probable cause that they've committed a crime. If DOJ could say, as we know, in the Hillary Clinton situation, she might have deleted emails off that server, wiped the server, quote unquote, but she handed over the server. So a search warrant wasn't going to do them any good at that point. There was no point in executing a search warrant in Chappaqua or wherever it was. Mm-hmm. With Donald Trump, what I think would undercut some of these arguments on the right is showing your work on everything you tried to do short of having to go down there and get the documents yourself. And obviously they've, for instance, um, there's been reporting that one of Donald Trump's lawyers signed a document to the DOJ and FBI uh, that in fact, there were no more classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. That turns out not to be true. But again, how what happened between that letter, they find this out, they say, yeah, but that's wrong. We want the documents. Does the Trump team really say, come and get it? I'm from Texas, so come and get it for me is a is a real phrase of honor. <laughs> <laughs> but but what you're getting to here, Sarah, really is the timeline. And, you know, it's it's fascinating to watch um, kind of how all this unfolded. This is, you know, we're more eight, nearly 18 months into this process here. There's Trump's abrupt haphazard departure from the White House. The archives realizing some point in 2021 that he took some stuff home with him, a back and forth. Uh, 15 boxes returned in early 2022, the opening up in a criminal investigation in spring 2022. Obviously, I'm trying to do this as briefly as possible. Then there's the um, May into June uh, uh, meeting at Mar-a-Lago, where apparently former President Trump offers them a Coca-Cola, as well as a tour of the place. Um, And then they issue a subpoena somewhere therein. The lawyers at some point in June attest there's nothing more classified here. And then eight weeks later, the search. And I guess the, the big question people are asking and what you're getting at here is, when did this suddenly become urgent This in this 18-month process, right? Right. Wh- when did it become wh- urgent? And when did they really believe that there was no other alternative method to retrieve these documents? So, you know, for a, if a party ignores a subpoena, for instance, you can go to court about that. You don't get to ignore a subpoena. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, wh- did they do that? Why didn't they do that? Why did they feel, as you said, where was the sense of urgency then? I am totally willing to believe that there are very good answers to all of those things. But those are the questions. So the three laws that are mentioned in uh, the search warrant are the Espionage Act, uh, a law in regards to obstruction that passed after Enron about destroying or concealing documents from an investigation, and then a third law 
uh, Section 2071, which criminalizes the theft and destruction of government documents. Um, were were you surprised by any of these? Which ones to you are the, the most interesting? And if you're, you know, role-playing Team Trump, which ones would you be most concerned about? The Espionage Act has become a real catch-all in these type of cases. That's what Hillary Clinton was being investigated for. You've heard of famous cases like Reality Winner, who is charged under that statute. So in many ways, that's... Uh, and, and David Petraeus, uh, Chelsea Manning, Bradley yes. Matt. Yeah. Uh, it's a catch-all. It's... Yeah. Um, easy, sort of the wrong term, but most of these types of problems are going to fall under the Espionage Act. Ditto obstruction. I mean, at the point that you're having to execute a search warrant, I hope they bring, you know, say that there's obstruction issues because otherwise you didn't need the search warrant. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't surprising. I guess the, um, the destruction, illegally held materials, all of that, we just haven't seen a lot of evidence for what they're talking about with that. So that one was the one where I was like, Hmm, I'm curious. Say mm-hmm. more. Uh, and I think, again, we actually probably will find out answers to that. If this moves forward, you know, there's um, when Jim Comey made the what I believe was a huge mistake in giving a press conference about uh, not filing charges against Hillary Clinton. This is in July of 2016. This yeah. is the, the 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 big announcement The uh, that, uh, yes, Hillary Clinton did some uh, things that we feel um, were, uh, shall we say, irresponsible, but not uh, punishable by, you know, uh, we're not going to indict her. That's right. And it's worth mentioning, Loretta Lynch is the attorney general at that point. She has refused to recuse herself after that odd tarmac meeting with President Clinton. Right. At the same time, she says she's going to defer to Jim Comey, kind of deputizing him as attorney general-ish, which is not a thing in the Department of Justice. The FBI director doesn't even report to the attorney general. He reports to the deputy attorney general. So when Jim Comey gives that press conference, I I say all that because he actually was in a hard and difficult position, but he violated DOJ protocol and precedent in doing so, and he violated the chain of command. He didn't tell the attorney general because he felt like she was politically compromised. Okay, But what he's never really been able to explain is that he didn't tell the deputy attorney general, the person he actually reports to. So he gives this press conference doing exactly what DOJ should never do and why DOJ doesn't comment on the existence of the the closing of any potential investigation. Because to do so is to cast a light on someone when you actually don't think you have the evidence to bring charges against them. DOJ speaks in their court filings. They speak at trial. Because if I uh, decide to investigate you, publicly announce that, say that I think you did a bunch of stuff wrong, um, I have a lot of authority, a lot of weight as a federal law enforcement officer. And then to say, well, look, we're not going to actually charge him with anything or or try him, which would allow him to present his defense in court. Instead, I'm just going to tell you that, like, I think he's guilty. How are you, how's that going to go for your next job you're looking for when you go home to your wife or your family? Anyway, it's really bad. DOJ shouldn't do it. Jim Comey did it anyway. And you see why, right? He says Hillary Clinton did a bunch of bad stuff. She was irresponsible. She knew better. She knew the danger she was putting America's national security secrets in, and she did it anyway. But we're not going to charge her. Why? Uh, because, Intense. yeah, he basically says right? there wasn't willfulness to violate the statute. 
which isn't actually the language in the statute. It says willfulness or gross negligence. Um, and then he says, and in addition, when we looked back at previous cases, there was always something else that they actually were trying to harm the United States, help a foreign power. There was significant obstruction. Uh, and so Jim Comey has in some ways, <laughs> in so many ways, changed the course of American history, perhaps. Well, but he, he, He's almost made it more difficult for Merrick Garland. Much more uh, difficult to prosecute Trump because he's created this higher standard. A higher than statutory language standard that has to be met now. Um, And again, DOJ may meet that standard, but I think there's a good chance that they just wanted the documents back and that this could actually be the end of it. What's your sense of the timeline here? I mean, I, you know, I'm asking you to completely speculate here, but like, (laughs) you know, that, uh, so they, you know, we, we, they've executed the search warrant. They, you know, they've uh, gone through uh, Melania's closet, allegedly, right? Uh, they, they, they found everything that was left to be found, uh, including, I, it sounds like they swept up some privileged stuff between Trump and his attorneys that they might have to return. Not unusual. Um, also, there's filter okay. teams at DOJ. This happens all the time. If you go and do these large document sweeps for sophisticated CEOs, this is the type of white collar work that DOJ does a lot of in the FBI. So they actually have filter teams built in where one team will now review all of that just for privileged material, pull that out before the team that actually reviews the classified material looking at the Espionage Act will ever get their hands on it. So they never see the privileged material. Got it. So so uh, Trump is complaining right now that they swept up his stuff and he wants everything back. Yeah. And and what you're saying is this is par for the course. This is this is done. This has happened in previous search warrants. Very and regular. there's a protocol for here and they will return all privileged stuff without uh, no. Attorney-client privilege, it's worth mentioning. Sorry. Trump also mentioned executive privilege. <clears throat> that was one of the dumber things that I've seen him say, actually, because if he's saying that those things fall under executive privilege, by definition, they fall under the Presidential Records Act, in which case they don't belong to him. They belong to the National Archives, so he shouldn't have had them in the first place. It was a weird admission of guilt. Got <laughs> Got it. Well, clearly, uh, the truth that he posted on Truth Social uh, was not uh, vetted, but that might also be because his attorneys probably need their own attorneys right now based on what you're previously saying, which is they signed documentation in June that uh, all classified documents were gone. So, you know, what's interesting here is we look at these three laws um, and I ask you to speculate on, on what may happen here that, you know, they might not end up prosecuting the president, but someone else might get prosecuted under one of these laws. Yeah, so this goes back to who had access to that room. I'm speaking without any evidence of this, but I'm painting you a scenario by which, you know, this could unfold a different way, which is um, Trump didn't know that those documents were there. An aide brought them down to Mar-a-Lago so that that aide could continue to access them for reasons that won't matter because that aide, A, can't declassify stuff, uh, B, certainly can't keep documents in a basement in Mar-a-Lago to be able to review them, and whatever they were planning to do with them won't be legal either. And that surveillance footage will show them coming in and out, maybe bringing other people to view them. Regardless, yes, that person would be in some pretty significant legal jeopardy at that point. Again, assuming they were the ones who also um, aided in the removal of the documents. In terms of timeline, it is worth mentioning that DOJ moves very, very slowly, Mm -hmm. except for the times that they move very quickly. So, uh, for instance, in the Mueller investigation into interference in the 2016 campaign, that took about 18 months. That was lightning fast lightning fast for DOJ. People didn't feel that way because they aren't used to federal investigations. But um, 
that's a timeline that you could say was almost the fastest DOJ could do an investigation like that. On the other hand, DOJ is also running up against its own time constraint, which is that at least, again, by protocol, by precedent, DOJ tries to wrap up anything political that they're working on, frankly, before Labor Day of an election year. (laughs) So, or they're going to take, what, a gap? But then by then, maybe this guy's announced for president. That It's all very, very messy, which is why I say there's a decent chance this is done now. They got the documents back under the Comey standard for Hillary Clinton. There's no way that they are close to being able to bring charges against the president. My scenario about that third party person going in and out of the basement isn't true. That's all Mm -hmm. made up. And so this is done. And there is no timeline. There is no speeding up or slowing down. They have the documents back. It's, I, I wanted to get your take on on whether you know there's talk amongst the the Trump circle that they want to speed up an announcement for president uh, because that also would uh, make it more challenging possibly to continue an investigation uh, on an active candidate for president. Um, is I mean, is there any is there any legal? Is that just precedent? What- it's just precedent. You know, certainly if uh, a candidate for Congress goes and shoots a mailman in October of the midterm elections, they're Mm going to get arrested regardless of the fact that it's in the run-up to an election. But it could provide at least an interesting reason why the Department of Justice suddenly needed to execute a search warrant. It was August. Maybe they're being told that they need to stop this investigation because the president's about to announce for president again. And so reminding them about their own protocol... uh, that could cause DOJ, for instance, to need to get those documents back more quickly before he announces for president. And if their lawyers, if his Trump's lawyers thought that they were somehow <laughs> pressuring DOJ into dropping the investigation, they had a bit of the opposite effect. So we've been watching this debate around declassification of documents. Uh, the president says, well, he's had multiple uh, counter arguments here that he's <laughs> kind of uh, tried, rolled out in the past week. Uh, the FBI is corrupt and planted things on me. Um, okay, I did have stuff on me, but I was cooperating. They could have had anything. Uh, I, de- I declassified everything. Uh, by the way, Obama took home documents too, and a, like a lot more than me. Um, those are a handful of the things that he's rolled out here. But I, I'm particularly interested in the declassification of documents and, and this idea that they're automatically declassified if he brings them to Mar-a-Lago. Take us through, I mean, as somebody um, you know, who worked within uh, administration, within DOJ, how, how, how does declassification work? Yeah, this is actually a more complicated question than you'd think, but legally, I mean, even. Yeah. But A, it's important to know that Hillary Clinton also had declassification authority as Secretary of State. Now, she could only declassify things up to, uh, I forget whether it was secret, some, uh, there was a specific level at which she could declassify. The president obviously has broader declassification authority. But uh, in addition, Congress can actually limit both of their declassification authorities, and has. So in the Atomic Energy Act, for instance, Congress said, uh, no, you do not have the ability to declassify documents like that. Okay, so that's part of the legal answer. Let's get to a little bit of the prudential answer for a second, which is this idea that Trump had a standing order that anything he took out of the White House was automatically, by nature of it coming out of the White House, declassified. That is bonkers town, is the technical legal term. Got it. Uh, John Bolton, 
his national security advisor, says that he was unaware of any such order and can't imagine that any such order could have existed because just think through this practically. So Donald Trump was spending all sorts of weekends, et cetera, at Mar-a-Lago, presumably reviewing really, really um, closely held stuff. If by definition, anytime he reviewed that at Mar-a-Lago, it became declassified, that means it would be open to public review. So for instance, someone happened to figure out down that that document had moved to Mar-a-Lago and therefore become automatically declassified, they could have actually filed a public records request for it. And also, weirdly, you don't hear uh, the president or his aides now saying that they had an automatic reclassification. So the only way this would even make any sense is every time you move something to Mar-a-Lago, it got declassified, but then every time you moved it back, it got reclassified. Or right. do they just mean it was a standing order that one time when he left the White House? They've been really unclear. Okay, but now back to some of the legal problems. There's no evidence that this order was written down in any way with any limits. And that can get pretty messy. Obviously, the president can give verbal orders. Of course he can. We've all watched movies. Uh, and that's actually pretty accurate. But when it comes to something like declassification, again, Congress is going to have set out some limitations to this. And they're very well could be statutory hurdles depending on these documents that a verbal order would not have covered. So it's a very messy excuse and one that doesn't make a lot of sense and one that could have just as easily applied to Hillary Clinton. So you get the hypocrisy element as well. Yeah. You know, one, one remarkable thing, and I think you talked about it on, on ABC uh, this week on Sunday, was there were Republicans who said Hillary's email server disqualified her for president. Um, and are coming to circle the wagons around Trump now. And then you have Democrats who back in the day dismissed the whole issue with Hillary, saying it wasn't a big deal. I don't know what you guys are making a deal about. Now making a big deal about uh, classified documents at a private residence. It can make one feel like they're going insane. I feel like I'm going insane. <laughs> what's, because what's, every time people What's the line from to... Zoolander? Like, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. <laughs> yes, yeah. because... Yeah. Each side tries to tell me how the other side is totally different. They're not similar at all. Yeah. And I'm like looking around like, is anyone else seeing this? I'm the only one who thinks that there's some similarities here. <laughs> well, well, but but let's, you know, like, let's try to do an apples to apples comparison. Um, you know, uh, you know, Trump was president. Hillary was secretary of state. Uh, Hillary had the private server. Trump took the, the stuff home with him. To, you know, to what extent? I mean, I guess if we're trying to based on, again, what is publicly reported, we don't have access to the affidavit. We don't right. know what was in, inside those documents. We don't know what was deleted from Hillary's server. But just, you know, kind of on the level here, um, I, I guess I'm asking a very simple question, which is like, which one is a bigger deal? Which one is more significant or is it hard to say? I feel like I can make arguments for both. So first of all, we actually, <clears throat> the FBI did announce that they'd recovered, if not all, the vast, vast majority of what they believe was deleted from her server. That's why when the Anthony Weiner computer was found, they reopened it. And then it turned out that all of those emails they had already recovered. Right. Uh, so there were no, there were all duplicates. Um, so look, let me just throw out some ideas of what makes one worse, but then the other one could be worse. So I could make a great argument that having classified conversations over a private server is actually far less secure than having classified documents in a basement behind a lock in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, as we know, the Russians were able to hack the DNC server, get all those emails from John Podesta. They can use things for blackmail. They can use it to sow discord in our elections. That was just so incredibly stupid. And the reason for it was because she didn't want 
her political opponents being able to FOIA, you know, to get her emails through a public records request. And so she thought this was more convenient, more politically convenient. That's outrageous to put our national security at risk mm-hmm. for such a personal, um, uh, personally helpful reason. Okay. On the other hand, um, Donald Trump was asked for these documents back and clearly did not give them back even after a subpoena. So much so, and again, we don't quite know what happened in between, but at least the FBI believed they had to come down with a search warrant. And remember, they came down without their blue windbreakers on. There were no helicopters circling. So the idea that this was always intended to embarrass him doesn't quite add up to the facts. Right. We we first learned about this because Donald Trump put out a statement about it. Yeah, I mean, there was one uh, reporter in South Florida for a very local newspaper down there who said, I believe the FBI is at Mar-a-Lago right now. But Mm -hmm. 20 minutes later, Trump put out a statement and that's what confirmed it. Um, In fact, he said he said it was a wonderful tweet, one that I wish we saw more of. He said, I'm not a good enough reporter to get a second source on this, but it's true. (laughs) And it's amazing. I I actually appreciate the transparency. Yes. Yes. It was great. Um, So. Yeah, I mean, and again, like, okay, so she wiped her server, which you could argue is obstruction of justice. Uh, We've seen torn up documents in the toilet. Um, We have no reason to believe that Trump didn't destroy documents. Again, these are like documents in a bunch of different places in Mar-a-Lago, all of which, whether they were highly classified or not classified at all, didn't belong to him. They belong to us because under the Presidential Records Act, All of those documents belong to the American people and they are held in trust by the National Archives. So that has a certain willfulness to it that at least you were going to have difficulty proving about Hillary. You can think that Hillary was willful, but this is like definitely willful when they ask you for the documents back and you say, no, they're mine, which again, reportedly is what Donald Trump said when he was asked for one of the documents back in particular. And the lawyers signed saying, we don't have any more classified stuff anymore either, which again, appears to have turned out to be false. I hope that lawyer believed that to be true when they signed it because, uh, 1001, man, it's always the cover-up, lying yeah. to federal investigators during an investigation every time, man, every time. Well, I, I wanted to get as briefly as possible into the process of, of getting a search warrant because um, how, how does this approval work and, and how do you imagine approvals would have worked when someone at the FBI is like, listen, we got to search Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> I can imagine there was a brief silence in that room as everyone was like, uh, <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> no. oh, yes. Um, all right. So the Department of Justice is all of this, right? It has 120,000 employees, but at the core are federal prosecutors. Here, we're going to talk about the National Security Division. Uh, it looks like the head of counterintelligence was involved in this and probably part of the investigative team this entire time. He and his other federal prosecutors are going to have a team of FBI agents who work with them. And, uh, you know, whether it was the FBI coming to them and saying, we've exhausted, like, we have to get these documents back, or more likely the lawyers on the team saying, well, They refuse to answer the subpoena. They've signed this document that's a lie, that we know is a lie. We have a source who has told us um, in perhaps a different investigation, for instance. Let me give you an example. Assume that they're in the January 6th investigation. They interview an aide to Donald Trump. And during the course of that interview, they ask, are you aware of any more classified documents at Mar-a-Lago? 
that person's not an informant. They didn't raise their hand and say, hey, you guys should really go search Mar-a-Lago. He's lying to you. This person then faced a choice. They could tell the truth, in which case the result might be a search at Mar-a-Lago, or they could lie, in which case they were going to go to jail. That's how I think this went down. That's the quote unquote informant is someone who is being deposed, um, again, under penalty of perjury and they don't have much of a choice but to tell the truth unless they're a complete moron. Okay, so then they have that evidence that these documents are there. They now believe they have exhausted for whatever reason, and I do want to know those reasons, um, that there's no other way to get them but through a search warrant. At that point, the FBI agents are going to swear out an F affidavit. That's just a statement of facts, what they know, how they know it, who told them, how recently, how credible that person is. That's the type of stuff you're going to find in that affidavit. It may even include specifically, you know, we know this specific document is down there, um, things of that nature. That is then uh, going to go with those federal prosecutors who in a normal case would then go to a federal magistrate judge, say, we believe we have probable cause. The magistrate would say, I agree, the end. That's not what's going to happen in this case, though. The federal mm -hmm. prosecutors are going to get that affidavit, take a deep breath and say, okay, let's do this. They're going to go uh, from the National Security Division to the head of the National Security Division, who's an assistant attorney general, Senate confirmed. That person's then going to also have a heavy sigh. They're going to call the what's called the PADAG, the Principal Associate Deputy Attorney General. That person keeps the trains running on time throughout the Department of Justice. There is not a pin that drops with 120,000 employees that the PADAG doesn't know about. Uh, he's going to say, you are scheduled to meet with the Deputy Attorney General in 10 minutes. Please get over here. Uh, they're going to have that meeting with the Deputy Attorney General. They're going to answer any and all very detailed legal questions that the DAG will have at that point. And then he's going to say- and, and presumably here they're saying, is there anything else we can do short of a search warrant to get these documents? I have to imagine that was the first and- hundredth question. Yeah. <laughs> what about this? What did you try this? Are you sure? Um, so uh, that's going to be the longest meeting in a lot of ways is that meeting with the DAG, um, because that's almost the COO of the department of justice. Mm -hmm. Then you're going to go to the CEO. That's the attorney general. And then you're going to have the attorney general sort of senior most officials who work directly for him in there. He's going to have a national security counselor, for instance, a chief of staff, um, and you're going to have the deputy attorney general, the PADAG that I mentioned, the head of the National Security Division, and probably a few of those federal prosecutors, the head of the counterintelligence division, no doubt was there. And they're going to say, Mr. Attorney General, we unanimously recommend that we execute a search warrant on Mar-a-Lago. Whether Chris Ray, the Trump appointed FBI director, is in that meeting or not, uh, I can assure you that one of the first questions from the attorney general was, what does Director Ray think about that? And either he comes over in his little motorcade or he's on the phone real quick uh, because he's been briefed up through those FBI channels as well. He does not sign off on the warrant. He's not in the chain of command to go seek the warrant. But any attorney general worth their salt is going to value the opinion of their FBI director on something like this. And especially one that's appointed by Donald Trump. <laughs> so there is a scenario where Ray, I mean, we obviously don't have any visibility into the meeting where Ray could could have been a dissent here, but in all, presumably Merrick Garland would have gone with what Ray wanted to do. Um, absolutely. Uh, this yeah. could have been a non-unanimous decision. I really, really doubt it. In part because um, it's 
the Department of Justice rarely works on non-unanimous decision. These are a bunch of lawyers who kind of all know the rules. They all know the regs. And even when there's sort of a dissenting voice or someone even playing devil's advocate, in the end, um, you know, there are two scenarios presented. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be pretty rare on something like this to have anyone really dissenting because if there were any exhaustion method left, you're probably just going to go that route. And and you know, you were there during the Trump administration. I mean, various administrations have had different policies in terms of separation between the White House and the Justice Department. But officially, what is that wall like? I mean, when they say the White House was not given a heads up, you know, the feeling, well, you know, Trump's tweets, like, or truths, I guess they're called now. Like, well, you know, but this was clearly Biden coming after me, et cetera. What is that wall officially uh, in in most, I guess you would say, post-Nixon administrations between the White House and, and the DOJ? So that's a very interesting question because it's actually based on something called um, the White House communication policy. The White House communication policy, weirdly, uh, is sort of a misnomer because it's who from the White House can call whom from the Department of Justice. Uh, and it's so it's one way street going down to DOJ. In theory, anyone from DOJ can call anyone at the White House because why would they? <laughs> but mm-hmm. you don't want the press secretary at the White House calling the head of counterintelligence and saying, what uh, indictments are you rolling out tomorrow? And so the White House communications policy is adopted in each administration. It can change. It just generally doesn't because everyone then would want to know what the change is and why. (laughs) And so by and large, we're dealing with a White House communications policy that is pretty much the same since the Bush administration, slight tweaks. It's nearly identical to the Holder uh, DOJ. And uh, it's going to say that, you know, the president, the White House chief of staff, and the White House counsel can call the DAG or the attorney general. There's going to be uh, some uh, wiggle room around policy questions, of course. DOJ also does policy, right? They do white papers, uh, legal opinions, things like that. There's going to be some uh, carve outs like for instance, I was the spokesperson at the Department of Justice. I'm obviously allowed to talk to the communications staff at the White House. They can call me. There's just going to be some stuff that I won't tell them mm-hmm. uh, and that they shouldn't ask me. And so that's largely what that policy says in writing. In practice, though, even though the attorney general had the authority, of course, to tell the White House that they were going to execute a search warrant, he could have asked the president for permission. Um, that would be a really bad attorney general. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I absolutely believe that they didn't tell the White House. I am surprised that they didn't tell the White House at all, meaning that once the search warrant was being executed, certainly in my time, we would have picked up the phone to the White House counsel and informed the White House counsel. Right. They were there like almost 10 hours. Right. On and Monday. the White House is like, we learned about it from Twitter at what, 4 p.m. or something, mm-hmm. 5 p.m., maybe later. That's weird to me. But it's so weird that I believe it because I assure you that they did not hear about it beforehand. So last thing here on the legal front, then I want to talk politics with you real briefly. Um, Republicans over the weekend, including on the Sunday shows, calling for the release of the affidavit. Um, Explain what would be in the affidavit and why it's unlikely we'll be seeing it anytime soon. And in what scenarios we might see that affidavit. 
Um, I don't think that it's an absolute no, we'll never see the affidavit. I do think it's an absolute no that we'll never see the unredacted affidavit. And I don't know how helpful a redacted affidavit is because they're going to redact out all the names and all the documents and all the descriptions of the documents that were classified. (laughs) So basically, we're looking for why they did this and they will probably redact that out of the affidavit. Yeah. I mean, what might be in there that could be helpful is their exhaustion methods. We subpoenaed them. They refused. We did X, Y, and Z after that. We believe, uh, you know, this attorney knowingly lied. Those are all things that wouldn't be redacted from the affidavit, or rather they wouldn't need to be redacted. Um, But again, who told them? How recently that person told them? What exactly uh, that person told them in terms of where classified documents were being kept? I think there'd be a reasonable reason to even redact that. Certainly the description of all the documents. So I don't know. Republicans have put themselves in a position where they have to say, we've got more questions. They've got to find questions that the Department of Justice isn't going to answer because what they don't want to do is blanketly defend Donald Trump when they don't know how bad this is. So instead, they want to be able to say, look, we just wanted transparency. We just wanted answers to our question. That way, if it turns out to be really bad, they can say, oh, well, uh, okay, that was bad. I mean, they're not going to do that. But And then if it's, uh, you know, not bad, they can say, aha, DOJ was corrupted the whole time. Is there a scenario where uh, like House Intel or Senate Intel could ask for a briefing and see that affidavit? And as presumably we know in Washington, the best leaks come from Capitol Hill. (sighs) Yes, is the answer. If you remember during the Russia investigation, Congress over and over and over and over asked to see the FISA warrants. Mm -hmm. And they did um, several times. So there is certainly some precedent for briefing Congress on an ongoing investigation, including of classified material. I, it's not wise. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it went particularly well. But that being said, the Department of Justice and the FBI made uh, a series of mistakes in the course of that investigation and in getting those FISA warrants. But also, remember, one attorney at the Department of Justice actually doctored an email in order to create the appearance of damning evidence to put into one of those FISA warrants. That's real bad. That was criminally charged, in fact. I It, it gets me actually to the politics of this, um, the, the threats. You know, we're seeing more than skepticism uh, of DOJ and FBI. Uh, we're seeing threats. Uh, we're seeing Republican lawmakers, even comparisons to Nazis, uh, defund the FBI. Yeah, um, when a Republican leader says this is war, and then yeah. a guy with a gun is saying that he believes what they're saying. He thinks it's war and that you need to take up arms. Um, One can't help but think that that person (laughs) has the courage of his convictions that these Republican leaders don't. They don't actually believe that it's war. And instead, they're duping people into violent criminal acts. And that guy in Cincinnati lost his life over it. It's, It's tragic. He believed something that wasn't true, that he was at war and defending his country against the FBI. It's, um, I don't know, it's really tragic to me. It's it's a repeat of, of sorts of some of these people who've gone to prison for January 6th, you know, who who saw some of the rhetoric, et cetera. I, have, have you been, I mean, even watching the politics of this country unfold over the course of the past, I guess now it's, you know, almost seven years since uh, former President Trump came down the escalator um, to announce his, um, a little more than seven years, actually. I, were you surprised by by the way how quickly Republicans circled the wagon around Trump and the rhetoric you've been seeing in the past week? No, 
because of January 6th. In the wake of January 6th, you saw so many Republicans finally break with Donald Trump only to realize that once again, they'd made a huge mistake, you know, back up to. Uh, right. We're going to watch Liz Cheney lose her seat over it this week. Absolutely. Back up to October of 2016, or was it September? But the the infamous audio recording, the Access Hollywood tape. Mm-hmm. And all the Republicans tried to drop him, only to realize a week later that their Republican voters didn't agree. And then they were all like, well, I guess it's not as bad as I thought it was. Lock, locker room talk. That's right. January 6th is the next moment you're really ever going to see a break with Donald Trump again. And again, almost universally, Republicans said, this must be condemned how Donald Trump caused this. Many, Kevin McCarthy said that. And then about a week later, they realized their mistake yet once again. And by mistake, obviously, I'm being somewhat sarcastic and referring to a political mistake. Um, This isn't anywhere close to that, in part because... The uh, the bar keeps getting higher. I don't see how you'd get higher than January 6th. This search at Mar-a-Lago was such an obvious moment for the wagons to circle because it's easy to defend them when you don't know what you're defending and you can just ask for more transparency. So net positive so far for Donald Trump one weekend and how much so? Within Republican primary voters, undoubtedly a net positive. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's a net positive overall. You know, Dana Milbank said something on the ABC Roundtable today that was very smart. Yes, for exactly the reason that this is a net positive with Donald Trump among those Republican voters, it's a net negative for the Republican Party overall because if the election were held today, and it won't be, and November's a long time off, but if the election were held today, they just made this a referendum on Donald Trump instead of Joe Biden, his handling of the economy, inflation, gas prices, baby formula, all of those things. Um, which is a surefire way for Republicans to win fewer seats than they should have in a midterm election. So I think you can argue that both ways. Trump has certainly done very well in these Republican primaries. He's been up against Mike Pence-endorsed candidates, Ted Cruz-endorsed candidates. He hasn't won all of them, but he's won the vast majority. But the question is, we don't know how those candidates are going to do in a general election. And it doesn't do any good to get your candidate through a primary if then they can't attract any general election voters. None of them get into office. Republicans don't take back the Senate. They lose governor's seats. And yet I wonder, will Republicans actually then say that Donald Trump isn't good for the party? No, they won't. Well, you know, I was also struck by the fact that most of his potential 2024 competitors, whether they be Pompeo, Pence, um, Even I mean, Larry Christie, Hogan in Maryland. L- right. Larry Hogan, like, you know, the most if you could say like anti-Trump Republican that it that there is um, running this time around or, you know, likely running this time around. Um, also, you know, saying, well, we have to be cautious here. Um, and so we're 18 months right now from the first primary from the Iowa caucuses, New Hampshire. Ooh. I'm sure you're pleased to hear that, Sarah. But we're now <laughs> we're now closer to the next election. We're getting closer to the next uh, vote than we were, you know, uh, than we are from the last general election vote. We still have a lifetime ahead in politics here. But um, how, how does this play out, given that 18 months out from the first vote, basically all the Republicans who would be running against him have to stand by him? Yeah, it puts someone like Ron DeSantis in a really interesting position, I think it will depend a lot on does Donald Trump announce before the midterms, which would make this even more of a referendum on Donald Trump. Do his candidates get through these general elections? Uh, Do Republicans take back the Senate? 
if all of those things happen, I think it'll be really difficult for a lot of those people to announce against Donald Trump. He will be the it's, de facto nominee at that point. It's still his party. Absolutely. But imagine the opposite. Um, Republicans don't take back the Senate. The vast majority of these candidates lose. You know, for instance, Peter Meyer, who voted to impeach the president, lost his seat in Michigan in the primary. The person who he lost it to has no chance of winning that congressional seat. That will now go to a Democrat. What was the purpose of that? I thought the purpose of the Republican Party was to win seats, not to win primaries. That doesn't make any sense to me. So uh, that could certainly change the ability of someone like a DeSantis to move forward to say, look, I love Donald Trump. He's amazing. He has changed the Republican Party for the better in all sorts of ways. But we're not winning. So interestingly, the fate of uh, Ron DeSantis, the fate of Trump 2024 lies with Dr. Oz, Herschel Walker, J.D. Vance, and the rest of those folks running. I think that's right. Um, And, you know, in Pennsylvania, as you said, Oz and Georgia, Walker, they are underperforming where they should be. And there's, you know, some reasons for that that maybe are not wholly Donald Trump. You know, I think in Pennsylvania, the gubernatorial candidate that Donald Trump endorsed is actually dragging down the ticket there. But look in Georgia, where the Pence-endorsed gubernatorial candidate, Brian Kemp, the incumbent, he's polling significantly further ahead of the Trump-endorsed Senate candidate, which means that there are voters telling pollsters that they plan to split their ticket between governor and senator. That's actually very unusual in this day and age. We don't have a lot of split-ticket voters anymore. That's bad for uh, the Republican Senate chances. There's not a whole lot of maps to taking back the Senate that don't run through Georgia at this point. Uh, So two final questions for you. One, we talked uh, briefly about the extreme violent rhetoric we're hearing from Republicans. This is war, et cetera. Is there a responsible voice? Who needs to be that responsible voice to calm people down before we see more incidents from, you know, like FBI Cincinnati on Thursday? I mean, every elected Republican. Uh, This is so easy. But you're asking who should, not who will. Yeah. Um, and then as we look forward here, Sarah, what are you going to be watching in the coming weeks uh, from DOJ, from FBI? Um, what, what's next to potentially drop here? And, you know, you were saying earlier that a, a, a speedy investigation by the FBI is 18 months. We're only ostensibly, if you believe the timeline, six months into a potential criminal investigation here, if that. Um, what, what are you looking for in the in the coming weeks and months? I'm expecting a lot of silence from the Department of Justice. If there's not, I'll be curious about whether they're considering a special counsel. Um, I would assume not just because of all of the fraughtness and frothiness around even that term. Um, But I just, I find it hard to believe that they think they're anywhere close to charging a former president of the United States with a crime based on what we know so far. And we say that at 9.23 p.m. Eastern time on this Sunday. <laughs> so true. Um, and we will, uh, we will await more details. Sarah Isker from The Dispatch, ABC News analyst. She's the co-host of Advisory Opinions. I imagine you'll be putting out an edition this week, Sarah? Oh, yes. Yeah. And uh, so please uh, catch that podcast. You can catch The Dispatch newsletter. Go subscribe over there. I appreciate your insight and perspective here, Sarah. Thank you. 
I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast, the Mo News Daily Podcast, and Sarah for being so generous with her time on a Sunday evening. We'd love your feedback on how we're doing, what other topics you'd like us to cover. Um, generally, anything you want us to know about how you're feeling about the podcast and Mo News in general, email us podcast at mo.news. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com and follow me over on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H for news 24-7. And before we go, don't forget to follow the show on whatever app you're listening to the podcast on and leave us a review. Every review matters and it helps us continue to grow the show. I'll see everyone back here tomorrow.